welcome to the Tall Poppies podcast. To find out more about our guests or the content of the program, including information about the musical excerpts, visit our website at tall-poppies.com. and a very warm welcome to a Tall Poppies postcard. I'm Brendan O'Shea. Thanks for joining me on the podcast that spotlights Australian luminaries around the world. To find out more about Tall Poppies, the podcast, visit our website at tall-poppies.com. As it's the European summer, I've had time to visit my archives to select a few interviews I've completed with renowned Australians over the last decades. It was back in 2009 that I met with the Academy Award-winning animation writer, director and producer, Adam Elliott, who hails from the Australian state of Victoria. You're always full of self-doubt. You're always, I think it's the Australian way to to sort of put put yourself down before anyone else can and self-deprecate yourself to death. Adam Elliott's films have been featured at hundreds of festivals and have received numerous awards, including an Academy Award for his film Harvey Crumpet. Adam calls his films clayographies, and by that he means clay-animated biographies. Their themes are bittersweet and often venture into domains that many filmmakers might normally shy away from. While being hilarious and poignant, Adam Elliott's films explore friendship, autism, taxidermy, obesity, kleptomania, religious differences and mental illness. Indeed, it is Adam Elliott's skillful writing attention to detail and wit that succeed in conveying these most challenging of themes to a wide audience. Even though they're blobs of plasticine, my job is to make them as authentic and real and identifiable as possible and, you know, multidimensional. And that's really tough. I mean, the the advantage of animation is that when you go and see a film, you you suspend your disbelief automatically. You have to give over. You know that what you're seeing is this drawing or this plasticine blob is not you know, it's not alive. His films take up to five years to complete and have been voiced by renowned actors the likes of Barry Humphreys, Tony Collette and the late Philip Seymour Hoffman. To date, Adam has made four short films. Cousin, Brother, Harvey Crumpet, Ernie Biscuit and a feature film called Mary and Max. Now, the latter tells a story that spans 20 years and takes place on two continents. Mary and Max are pen pals and two very different people. Mary Dinkle is a lonely eight-year-old living in the suburbs of Melbourne, Australia, while Max Horowitz is an obese, 44-year-old Jewish man with Asperger's syndrome living in the chaos of New York City. It's an unusual tale, sprinkled with the warmth and humour that have become the quintessential trademarks of Adam Elliot. Well, It was after the Berlin premiere of Mary and Max way back in 2009 that I spoke with Adam Elliott. I was nervous for many different reasons today, but um, I'm glad it's over. <laughs> Let's go back to this, this very an, an initial process. Where does one start with an animation like this? Of course, lots of people have known in the last years your work, and mm. lots of people knew before that Wallace and Gromit. Were they some of the, the early inspiration for you? 
Oh, sure. Look, I think, uh, you know, people often, you know, compare me to Ardman and, and Nick Park. And, but really, I think the only similarities are, is that we both use plasticine. Uh, my stories are very different to theirs. But really, I have to give them credit all the time because really they validated the art form. They really brought it to notoriety. You know, when I left film school and told my friends I was pursuing claymation, they, they would say, well, this is a dying art form. And really, Ardman championed the art form and, and brought it to the fore and prove that, you know, CGI animation is not necessarily going to uh, kill our art form, and it hasn't. Um, if anything, the digital technology has now liberated our art form, because we can actually now see what we're doing in high res. I mean, I could spend hours boring you with all the, the technical details, but yeah, stop motion is actually going through, I think, a bit of a renaissance. I mean, of course, it doesn't take away the fact that you explained today that you create about five seconds per day and that this took actually well over a year to film, which is incredible. <laughs> yeah, our shoot, when I hear about Baz Luhrmann's Australia film and uh, how long it took, I think, oh, that was nothing. Our shoot went for 57 weeks, you know. Had I known it was going to be this difficult to make, this stressful, this all-encompassing, I don't think I would have done it. There were a lot of high moments, but a lot of low moments. You know, no one had made a stop motion feature in Australia of this variety and we really were naive and underestimated what we were about to attempt. But I'm glad we did, of course. I think it's sometimes rather good to be ignorant about what the, the task really involves. Like you say, you went against the grain. So basically people said to you, this is a dying art. You still went ahead and did it. And do you think that there's a lot to do with the fact that, that one's forced to create in this way? It pushes you further on all sorts of other levels, not just in the level of, of, of filming and creation in that respect, but also on the story level. What comes first, the story and then the pictures? Or do you have certain ideas, certain sort of moments of inspiration that actually trigger off a whole idea? For me, script is, is king. You know, script is paramount. Um, I spent a year writing the script and I obsessed over every word. You know, I got my, my thesaurus was overused by the end. It was, uh, you know, at, at film school we learnt that uh, one of the lecturers said the three most important ingredients of a good film are script, script, script. And that really stuck with me. And I knew that we didn't have the money that Ardman has or DreamWorks or Pixar. And so we had to really stretch every dollar. But after the script, I did the storyboard, and again, um, I did that myself. I don't, I'm not very good at collaborating in the very early stages, so I drew 1,300 little panels, and that took six months. Then we got the studio and started employing sculptors and animators and DOPs and all these other you know, people we needed. But in the early stages, it was just me and my producer. And I think because I'm, so, I'm a control freak, and I admit that, Paper's cheap. Writing is cheap. It's the cheapest part of the process, but it is the most important. So um, for me, it's not so much the drawings or the plasticine or, or, you know, the look, which is important, the look, but it's really the words. It's, you know, and that's why we got people like Philip Seymour Hoffman and Tony Collette is because they love the script. And even though we're offering them peanuts, uh, they, they still were, were happy to do it. Grand Poppy Ralph had smelt like pickled onions and had been a member of the Frankston Icebreakers for 51 years. They swam in winter to feel alive. Grand Poppy Ralph had said it made his nipples erect. People like to put things into drawers in this part of the world mm -hmm. um, and you probably experience this quite a lot. Is it a child's film? Is it, a, is it an adult's film? It doesn't seem to be really be a discussion for me. I think that, you know, a good film's a good film, a good book's a good book. However, 
you pushed the boundaries with this, with your script here, quite deliberately. Mary has some pretty difficult things and Max has some pretty horrible diseases. Mm. Oh, absolutely. Look, I don't even know what the film is yet. I don't know what the genre is. If you walked into a video store, where would it be? What shelf would it be on? I'm like you. If a good film's a good film and, and it should reach everybody. You know, I always say my film's for everyone. But, but the commercial realities are is that they do have to label it. They do have to know who their target audience is. I think today was a good example because it was the first, as I said earlier, the first audience we've had kids in the audience and there were really little kids there. Personally, I think some of them are a little bit young to, to be in there, but they all responded and um, it's like Harvey Crumpet. Everyone said, oh no, it's not for kids and it's, it's really an adult film, but kids watch it, I know, I get emails from kids. So, and you, know, you can't underestimate how intelligent and clever kids are these days. I don't think I scarred anybody today for life. I'm interested, though, in knowing a little bit more about Mary. Mary has a hard time with a lot of different things, mm. apart from the fact she has glasses very similar to you, as yes. do many of the characters. What about some of these more difficult and nasty things that Mary comes across? She wants to cure the world of mental illness, for example, because of this love and this friendship that she feels for somebody that she's never met. Beautiful story. We always knew Max would be endearing. You just have to look at him and, and your heart goes out. Um, with Mary, it was always going to be a little bit more difficult because... She is naive and, and she does want to cure the world and she has this blind ambition and we didn't want the audience to dislike her. We wanted to actually them to understand that, look, she's just a little bit misguided. Max will sort her out and he does. You know, it was a, she's a lot dif more difficult. She's also difficult because she's only got these little black prawn eyes, as I call them, uh, and Max, is, his face is far more expressive and she's really quite, you know, limited by what she can do with her face. So she was far more challenging but um, I think it's the director and writer's role to push the boundaries and I get so frustrated with so many animated features where I think they're just so safe. When I go see a film I want to see something that's original and, and unpredictable and, and, and tackles um, subject matter that you don't normally see you know so yeah I, I'm glad I've, I did push myself. Sometimes I think I've pushed myself too far and I might have gone a bit too far with certain things. Someone, one of the reviewers said there were too many scatological references and I think well fair enough I think there was too many poo gags in there <laughs> but you know they were for the kids you know. Guaranteed laugh a fart gag works in any country. <laughs> to celebrate Noel announced he was retiring from taxidermy and taking up metal detecting instead. But sadly, it was not a hobby he had for long. What I found really, really impressive is that I found myself caring for these plasticine figure characters. In fact, I really cared what happened to Max and I really cared what happened to Mary and, you know, Maybe there are a few others there along the way, Ivy, and, and very believable characters. That's a difficult thing to do. You must have drawn up a rather good backstory for all of those characters. Absolutely. They, they all have backstories that, uh, that only I know about. But to me, it's, it's, even though they're blobs of plasticine, my job is to make them as authentic and real and identifiable as possible and, you know, multidimensional. And that's really tough. I mean... The advantage of animation is that when you go and see a film, you, you suspend your disbelief automatically. You have to give over. You know that what you're seeing is it, this drawing or this plasticine blob is not, you know, it's not alive. And that's the advantage we have. But having said that, you know, when, when a character dies, you want the audience to empathise. And, and, and without giving away the, the ending to the film, I really wanted the audience to be totally given over by the end of the film and you know I want the audience to cry because it is, it is a tragic ending. I mean it's got hope, there is hope I think. Yeah it's tough, it's really tough.
you know, it'd be much easier if I shot the film with real actors. <laughs> Quicker, too. Did your life change after the Oscar? Oh, look, it did. It means a lot more people were interested in giving us money to, to make the film, but it's still, it's still been a struggle. I mean, every film is, it seems to be more difficult than the one before. But look, I, I, I'm very lucky because in Australia we, we have government support, so Screen Australia, and, and Mary Max is 66% funded by the taxpayer, and in America that's unheard of. They, they just, someone in America came up to me and said, who let you make that film? because you could never make that in America. So we're, we're lucky, we've got great government support and I, for some reason they keep letting me have total creative control. And, you know, and I, keep, I keep waiting to be told, no, you can't do that, but each, each script they say, yeah, okay, do whatever you like. So, yeah, it's great. I take it that you must have quite a source of inspiration for music as well? Oh, look, this, this film was great because I got to use all the music I'd always wanted to use but could never afford. And so I went through my CD collection. I thought, oh, I'm going to have that one and that one and that one. And it was all very expensive, a lot, you know, uh, of course. But um, I really wanted this film to be far more musical. My first three films, there was no music at all. So I think, again, I try and, with each film, evolve and I try and do something a bit new that I hadn't tried before. But also this one, I tried to have Mary and Max would have a signature tune. And for Mary, it was a piece of the Penguin Cafe, a very famous English orchestra that's no longer uh, together. And for Max, we used a Russian rag, which was composed uh, by uh, Elena Katsuchernin, who's a Sydney uh, composer. And I just want a very nourishing music, very, very potent, um, engaging. And it's quite repetitious too, but not to the point where it becomes annoying. So, and especially my favourite piece of music in the film is when Max wins the lottery. And it's, it's Zadok the priest. And, oh, you know, we even snuck in a, a Tibetan drum right in the middle of that too, just to... <laughs> just to wake everyone up. He certainly has quite an adventure there. He wins a lottery and he suffers from all sorts of different diseases and, and really develops also as a character as well. On top of all of that, bringing something like this to a foreign country, to, to somewhere like Germany, and, and seeing how universal is a script and how does it communicate to people in other languages, does that ever worry you? Oh, absolutely. Every, every audience terrifies me. I mean, we just came back from Sundance and, and it went down really well there. And so that's ticked that box. The Americans get us. Now the next thing is, will the Germans get us? And, uh, you know, well, today, actually, they, I, I found I was a bit worried about three quarters of the way through because I, in America, they're far more vocal. They laugh, you know, they're, they're more, they're just louder for some reason. Whereas this audience, I thought, oh, I don't know if they're enjoying it, I'm not sure. And, but when they started clapping at the, at the beginning of the credits, I thought, oh, I was wrong, you know. You're always full of self-doubt, you're always, I think it's the Australian way to, to sort of put, you know, put yourself down before anyone else can and self-deprecate yourself to death. I mean, it's hard with film festivals because they're not true audiences. People tend to be a little bit more, I don't know, enthusiastic or something. But um, yeah, we'll so wait and see. Academy Award-winning animation writer, director and producer Adam Elliott. One of my Tall Poppies postcards, which feature an interview from my archives. And that interview was recorded in 2009 during the Berlinale, the German capital's international film festival, which takes place every year in February. If you'd like to find out more about Adam Elliott's work, then visit the Tall Poppies website, tall-poppies.com or send us an email to info at tallpoppies.com. Tall Poppies, the podcast, was produced in Berlin by me, Brendan O'Shea. It was nice to have you with us, and I look forward to welcoming you to our next edition of 
Tall Bobbies, the podcast, very soon. Goodbye. Goodbye.